listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Fathers, in 1 Thessalonians it says, that our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so, Lord, I pray right now, by your mercy and for your glory, that you would grant to us, Lord, these truths, that your word will be spoken and proclaimed, but you will do this, Lord, beyond anything that is normal or going through the motions. You will choose to move in power. You will choose to move in the power of your Holy Spirit, and you will bring every single one of us to a place of conviction where we understand the holiness of our God the sinfulness of ourselves, and the opportunity to live for Jesus Christ and for his fame. Oh God, I beg you, I beg you that this time is a supernatural time. It is a time, Lord, where hearts are so sincerely seeking you, our clarity with our vision and our desire, oh God, for you with our whole lives and our whole hearts. I pray, God, today that you will be leading us to a place that we do not fight against losing our lives for your sake. That we understand, Lord, the, the blessing and the honor and the privilege it is to be called by you, saved by you, reconciled to you, O oh God, redeemed in the power of the gospel, and to live again for that, which is the greatest calling ever and the highest privilege known across this universe, to be called a child that belongs to the king, a son or daughter adopted into the family of God. Oh God, I ask right now, that you would be heard and your people would be stirred. Thank you for your grace among us so far this conference and thank you for the grace that is promised to us even now. I pray that we pray this with unity and again expectation even now, Lord. Every heart I pray impacted for you. I pray in Jesus' name, if you agree, please say amen. And please open your Bibles to um, Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, our sermon title, message title this morning is this, uh, Revival, a God in Pursuit of His People. Revival, a God in Pursuit um, of His People. It is the prayer in Isaiah 63 and 64, as we heard last night, that sets up the response in Isaiah chapter 65. The prayer of Isaiah 63 and 64 setting up the response of God himself in Isaiah chapter 65. And it's this prayer that begins in Isaiah 63 verse 7 that becomes a powerful and beautiful recollection of the character of God and also becomes a passionate plea for the mercy of God as well. Isaiah 63 verse 15 summarizes the heart of this prayer. Look down from heaven and see. From your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts, O God, and your compassion are held back from me. We're hearing right here within this one verse an intense longing for the movement and activity of God. Such a powerful plea for deliverance upon the sovereignty and the wondrous love of God. And it's this prayer that ends in Isaiah 64, verse 12, where it says, and you can look at it there, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? And in the context of this prayer, 
Repentance is setting in among some of God's people. But the question now is, and what they first must ask themselves is, will they see God's power? As they long for him this way, will they see his glory? They first again must understand though is this, is that the the Lord is always in pursuit of his people. Just think about that. The Lord is always in pursuit of his people. The Lord constantly pursuing the people that belong to him to save them, to love them, to satisfy them, and ultimately to perfect them. I love the truth that the Lord woos us and pursues us. He loves us too much to let us be Jonah's forever. But at some point, he will reach out and he will grab us and and cause us to return back to him because, again, he loves us too much to let us stray from him because he wants us to be in a place where we're so blessed and loved and cared for and knowing the true satisfaction of him and him alone. This is the love of our God. This is the glory of our God. This is the compassion of our God. This is the grace and mercy of our God. And this is the God we once again encounter In Isaiah chapter 65, this becomes the heart of this chapter, I believe. God is in pursuit of his people. And it takes us to this first truth I have for them today. And this first truth is is this, is that the Lord, listen loved ones, the Lord seeks to be sought. The Lord seeks to be sought. Look at Isaiah 65 verse 1. It says, I was ready to be sought. This is the Lord speaking. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. And this amazing statement, he says, he says I hear I said, here I am. Here am I to a nation that was not called by my name. I want you to see here the beautiful and undeniable truth about our God. I want you to see in verse 1 here his passionate seeking to be sought by his people. Consider the phrases there in verse 1. I was ready to be sought. I was ready to be found. Again, and then in verse 1, the Lord himself says, Here am I. Here am I. Notice this. The pathway to revival always begins with the Lord. Of course it does. Notice here the initiation of God. Notice the calling of God. Notice the grace of God. Again, actively calling and wooing people to himself. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. The wonder, the wonder of God's pursuit upon his creation. Just consider the voice of God through the magnitude of the universe. God constantly, every day, we woke up today and the sun rose. And in a sense, God through the book of his world and creation, he's saying, here am I, here am I. Another way to say that in verse 1, he's saying, behold me. Look and behold me. I am the one who created all things. I am the one who deserves all glory. I am the one who is worthy of all honor and praise and majesty. Behold me, my creation. It's amazing what the Lord is doing and his calling upon us here and now. Every single heart in this room God calls right now. Every single individual right now God is wooing you again to greater things for his glory and his love. Because he is that good. And he knows as long as you stray from him, you are losing out on the fullness of his his satisfaction and his glory. As long as you're fulfilling your desires and pleasures and sin and me too, then we are missing out on his best for our lives. He loves us too much to let us stray. So he says, here am I. 
Here am I. That is so amazing. And this truth everywhere. Just think when you see the, the, the star-dusted sky, and there's the Lord proclaiming, here am I, here am I. Or again, that magnificent sunset, here am I, here am I. Or the child that is born. And ultimately, that is the Lord saying, here am I, here am I. When you see the ant on the ground or the leaf on the tree, all of these things are designed by the Lord to say, behold me, behold me. And that is why no one can live with an excuse to say, you do not give me enough evidence, Romans chapter 1. God everywhere, wooing, speaking, declaring his glory, the wonder that the God of glory is seeking to be sought that amazes me. He is seeking, hear this, to be sought today, now, in us, in this world. But there's more. Look at verse 2. There's more. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. So God doesn't stop there. This becomes a fascinating phrase. He says, I spread out my hands all the day. That phrase, I spread out my hands, it's predominant use within the Old Testament conveys an attitude of prayer. So this is God saying, I spread out my hands all the day. This is a, a, a earnest plea from God. This is a passionate entreaty of God towards man. It almost doesn't seem right. You're reading God's word and God is saying, I spread out my hands all the day, inviting, entreating, pleading. The God of glory, the God who is holy, the God sovereign over all creation is pleading for us. Again, it almost doesn't seem right. But you're reading the same Bible I am. And the Lord says, I spread out my hands all the day. Let me say it again. The Lord seeks to be sought. Consider then, inherently within this text, the astounding vulnerability of our omnipotent God. Consider the invitation we see here to a sinful people by our self-sufficient God. Who needs no other? It is extension of love and grace and again a mercy. I spread out my hands all the day. And hasn't it always been this way? Rebellious generation after rebellious generation, there is God calling, inviting, rescuing, and saving. Whether through Abraham or Moses, whether through Samuel or David, whether through Jonah or here now in Isaiah, all through history, including today, it's the sovereign God who's seeking to be sought because he is a God of love. And notice just how prepared God is for this. He says, I'm ready. Again, verse 1, I'm, I'm ready. Here am I, here am I. Notice here, our God in his transcendence. And yet, it's always, it always has caused me to marvel that God who is so above and high and holy in his transcendence is a God, Isaiah 57, who demonstrates his imminence and willing to dwell with the lowly and the contrite. Praise God for his mercy. Amen, church? Praise God for his goodness. Amen, church? Praise God for his willingness to be with us when he does not have to, but he loves to because he wants to renew and restore and revive a people that deserve it not. But he calls and he calls. Notice in verse 1, he is seeking to be sought by those who did not ask for him. He is ready to be found by those who did not seek him. And what is this ultimately but the reality and the power of the gospel? That will reach the nations, even 
predicting the movement of the church in the book of Acts. When the gospel will be found and seen among so many nations, what the Jews would reject in our context too, the Gentiles would welcome. And in this room right now, the dozens of nations that are represented proving this very fact, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask me or did not even seek me. That's us. It's the very gospel that proves how far our God is willing to go in humiliation in the seeking of his people. Think about this. It's the very gospel that spread the arms of our Savior, Jesus Christ, on the cross. I spread my hands out all day long. And ultimately, Jesus dying on the cross for all our sins, ultimately saying, here am I. Here am I. And to anyone who looks up to him who was lifted up, they shall be saved. It's the very gospel that Tears the curtain in the temple from the top to bottom. And in essence, that is God saying to us as well, here am I. Here am I. Behold me. The, the pathway and access to God is now opened, granted for those who receive by grace through faith. And just think about this, loved ones. Think about this right now. This gospel Portrayed in this text and through this word, this gospel is what we are commissioned in Christ to declare now today. We are declared through the gospel to the one who says, here am I, here am I. We are now commissioned to say, here he is. Here he is. Not behold me, behold him. Behold him, behold him. That's our opportunity. That is that is the privilege of the calling that we have in the gospel. There is no greater calling and is no greater privilege. We say in a dark world right now, here is the light of the world. To a world that is starving, here is the bread of life. To a world who desperately needs a savior, here, here, behold, is the Lamb of God. We need to see and we cannot miss. The pathway to revival begins with God. Because he seeks to be sought he seeks to be sought. And I have to admit right now, this is where this passion is my point of passion in my life. Oh, how the Lord is looking for a few men and women who are fully devoted to him. This is why A.W. Tozer, he says, you come near to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel their heat and desire after God. Every man and woman who has been powerfully used in the history of the church, there are no exceptions they are men and women who have been captivated by the love and the grace of God, his mercy upon their lives, and they have a heat coming from their lives where if you drew close to them, you could warm your hands on their fire for Jesus Christ. And you know what I'm talking about. You know the people when you encounter them, and there's something different, and they are giving off a sense of the glory and the love of God, and it's powerful, and it's contagious, and many of us say, how come I'm not like that? But this is why the Lord woos us. And this is why the Lord says, here am I. Because the Lord says, I want you to be like that. And you can be like that. And I offer myself to you to make you like that. But this is the work of the Spirit of God. This is the power of the passion that is seen within him in us. And the work that he does. And this is what the church needs so much right now. Is the desire to put ourselves before him in humility. And to say, God, I cannot do this apart from you. But let's just be honest, dear two loved ones. Let's just be honest today. So often we want other than God. Every day we prove that. Our passions often are not in him or in his glory. 
So often they are rooted in ourselves and our self-glory. That's what we have to repent of. That's what needs to end. It can't be about us. The Lord seeks to be sought. This is the great need of the church today. That is why we need to do less talking and frankly, uh, more praying. More praying. There's so many pastors and elders and leaders and people, they do so much talking about God, but fail to actually talk to God. So many conversations, so many debates, so many discussions, all about him, but we fail to actually talk to him. No prayer in its very definition, it's an earnest plea. Prayer by its very definition is, I need you, God. I can't do this without you, God. So think about it then. Conversely, prayerlessness is. We would never want to say it this way. We don't want to admit it. But a prayerless life is a life, whether they know it or not, is saying, I don't need you, God. Thanks, God, but I got the, a church that doesn't pray is a church that says, I don't need you. The pastor who doesn't pray says, I don't need, we, I would never say that. A church would never say that. Of course we believe in prayer. Are you doing it? Because the people who understand the theology of our complete and utter dependence upon God, they are the people who take the theology in their heads and transfer it to a theology of their heart that is seen through a theology of their lives. Prayerlessness, think about this. Prayerlessness in your life right now and mine is I don't need, I don't want to be that, you don't want to be that person either. Less talking, more praying. More praying, less strategizing, more surrender, less of us, more of him. This is when our knowledge of God must, must translate into a devotion for God. I am all for truth and knowledge. I am all for the pursuit of God. I love his word. I love the doctrine of God's word. I love understanding and learning, but it's wasted if it stays in my head and doesn't impact my heart. And you are no different. And all of this, and why is this so important? It's because the Lord seeks to be sought. Here today, trust me, he's speaking to some of you already. And he says, I want more of you. And he's seeking you and me right now. So what's the problem then? Why is there so little movement and momentum in seeking after the Lord? It takes us to our second point. If the Lord seeks to be sought, here's the problem. Number two is this. It's our sin that ruins our seeking. It's our sin that ruins our fire, our affection, our seeking after the Lord. Again, look at verse two. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. The Lord here is pleading with the Israelites. He's he's calling for their devotion, but instead, what does he find? He finds their rebellion. And rebellious here in verse 2, it it can mean obstinate or stubbornness. And notice God calls out, again, all the day. But his continual calling is only met with continued rejection and hardness of heart. And what verses 2 to 7 become is an unpacking of the depth and the waywardness of their hearts all because of their sin. But the invitation is to seek the Lord. But here again, here again, it's our sin that ruins our seeking. It's our sin that ruins 
everything. This is why God pursues his people, because he pursues us to see repentance from us. One of the greatest mercies he gives to us is to allow us to be broken in order that we come to him for the cleansing of our sin. Notice at the end of verse 2, there's the word devices. This can also be translated um, imaginations or, or thoughts. So the Israelites, they were set on their own thinking. They were set on their own wisdom. They were set on their own calculations. And whenever we're set on our own thinking, own wisdom, own calculations, that will always equal devastation. At the end of the day, loved ones, understand, it's the thoughts of the mind that lead to the fruit of our life. And the thoughts of the Israelites' minds were messed up. And then their lives were then messed up. And then we have verse 3. The seriousness of sin is increasing. The text says, A people who provoke me to my face continually. Notice this. Notice how personal the Lord takes sin. Provoke me to my face. Notice the continually in verse 3. That's a direct reference to the pleading all the day in verse 2. I plead all the day. They reject me all the time. I plead all the day. They continually reject me in their sin. And then notice in verse 3, there's more uh, the phrase gardens there. Gardens were an unlawful place for sacrifice. Bricks are mentioned. Bricks were an unauthorized material for an altar. I want you to see within verse 3 here, these things, uh, gardens and bricks, they could be classified as small areas of obedience. Seemingly unimportant, easily overlooked, and yet this is where it always begins to ruin our seeking. It's when we neglect the minor, which so easily grows to the major. Oh yeah, we might have language down, and we might have external behavior covered. But in reality, the weed of hypocrisy has taken root. And when the weed of hypocrisy has taken root, what happens? It steals our pure affection and it stains our motives. How many ministries have been brought down? How many pastors have been brought down? How many pulpits have been brought down by a casual view of sin? It begins so small. It's just a a little weed on the ground. And it's neglected. It's excused. It's rationalized. It's looked over. If that thing's not knit, man, it grows. And it grows. And the pastor's over here and he comes back and all of a sudden, man, this weed gets hard to cover and you're trying to shield people from it, but then it promotes lie after lie after lie after lie. The next thing you know, the ministry's no longer. It's when the minor, you're here right now and you have small sins, you think small sins aren't a big deal? Understand this, they're a big deal to the Lord. And he loves you too much to let you stay in minor or major. And this is part of why we're here even right now as the Lord calls us to this, to allow us to understand and to see. Again, in verse 4, look at verse 4 now. It says the phrase, in the tombs. In the tombs was a reference to the consultation with the dead and fortune-telling things that God despises, of course. And also in verse 4, pig's flesh is mentioned. Another indication of the Israelites pursuing their own methods and devices and religion. And we come to verse 5. And that's a form of religious elitism. Look at verse 5. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. What they were doing here is, Israelites were forming their own standard of holiness. And hear this, and they looked down with pride upon those who were beneath them. 
Oh, how many have started out with pure intentions but have been ruined in the pride of their own self-righteousness. Let me say it again. Ruined in the pride of their own self-righteousness. You want to see the fire of revival put out in a hurry? You want to see the fire of revival put out in a hurry? Then you show me a group of men and women who are more passionate about their own righteousness than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They might be talking righteousness of Christ all the time, but in reality, they are more fired up and consumed with their own self-righteousness in their hearts, in their minds, than they are about the reality of the righteousness they've received in Jesus Christ. And that is the thing that will grieve the Holy Spirit in a second. This is the plague of religious elitism. Religious elitism is so dangerous because it blinds us, as many, many wise men have said over the days. Pride is so dangerous, it blinds us to our blindness. We cannot see that we cannot see. This is what pride does. This is the parable of the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee stands up. This has always blown me. The Pharisee stands up and he says, God, he prays, God, I thank you. Out loud, drawing attention, I thank you. I'm not like extortioners, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The amazing part of that parable Jesus is telling, he's revealing to us the very person, the tax collector, is thanking God for whom he is not, is the very person God wants him to be. God, I thank you I'm not like him. God's like, I want you to be like him. See how much pride blinds us? There's a religious form of elitism where we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. We're saying all the right things and moving in all the right circles and reading all the right books. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we start to squeeze out the power of God from our lives and our ministries and our leaderships. And God's on the outside and we're looking around saying, where's all the fruit? Where's all the fruit? You left it back there when you followed the path of pride in our lives. And God says in verse 5, they're like, like smoke in my nostrils, he says. A smoke in my nostrils. And then verses 6 and 7, God promises that this will not go unpunished. With each generation, the, the guilt is being piled up one upon another. I want us to see today, and these are such critical times in our lives, I want us to see in the text again how seriously God takes sin. The arrogance, the blindness, the stupidity. In some cases, the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. This is why then, this is why then, loved ones, without question, genuine repentance must be the precursor to true revival. It must be. There is no other way because it's sin that ruins our seeking. It's sin that hardens and blinds and corrupts. So then if that is true, this is also true. But then the brokenness and the humility and repentance, that's what God dwells within. I mean, that's the point of this banner right here. I mean, that's the very truth of that verse. These are the people that God moves in. Isaiah 57, Isaiah 66, later on today. Make sure we understand this. If we are ever going to be leaders, if we're ever going to be leaders in revival, we must be leaders first in repentance. If we will ever be leaders in revival, we must first be leaders in repentance. The things that drive me crazy and the temptations of my heart. Any pastor who stands at the front of his church and puts on a front that he has it all together, he is a spiritual fraud. 
And every person in the congregation should know it but him. The temptation to stand up and to present this image of I have it all together. I got my wife around my arm and my kids in tow and here we go. And and we're just projecting this false notion that we don't have struggles and issues and sin too. That person is a spiritual fraud. And listen, by the grace of God today and the mercy of God today, there might be some in here right now who God has just revealed to you that you've been a spiritual fraud. But listen, he lets us see our sin that we might then find his love. And the pathway to the things we want the most will often come and have to come through the points of brokenness and becoming low before him. My heart grieves of all the men especially the men in the church I pastor and the men that I minister to week by week and the men that I see, the men who are unwilling to surrender their lives fully to Jesus Christ because they're too proud to admit they need him. That breaks me because they are foregoing his blessing of what it means to be a true leader in the Lord Jesus Christ, what it means to have the love of God. There are so many men who have never wept at the feet of Jesus Christ. That breaks my heart. And to think, and to think, they'll go through this life and they'll stand before the Lord. And they'll have to give an account for what they've used, they've been entrusted, and they'll have to come up with something. God, God, I, I gave you, I gave you. And what are you going to say? I'm sorry, God, I was just too proud. I cared too much about what people thought. So I feared man as opposed to you, God. And I wasted the opportunity. Please, Lord, let it not be so. This is why brokenness is so everything. Charles Simeon said this on brokenness. He said, Repentance brokenness is in every view so desirable, so necessary, so suited to honor God that I seek that above all. The tender heart, the broken and contrite spirit are to me far above all the joys I could ever hope for in this veil of tears. He says, I long to be in my proper place, my hand on my mouth and my mouth in the dust. I feel this to be safe ground. Here I cannot err. I am sure, this is so great, I am sure that whatever God may despise, he will not despise the broken and contrite heart. Somebody say amen. And there it is. Whatever God will despise, he says, I am sure he will not despise the broken and contrite heart. That's the opportunity of today. That's where revival and renewal begins. That's what our land needs. We wake up into that. We start waking up to that. And we wake up to a whole bunch of different things. And the joy and the power and the conviction and the Holy Spirit that moves through us. And the ability to be alive in the Spirit of God in a sense. He is using us. Incredible to see the picture of the Lord Almighty, the sovereign God of the universe with his hands spread out wide, calling out with invitation. And yet it's the sin of the people that caused them to pass right on by and not even notice. This is why God says, I move through the broken. I move through the humble. Is it any wonder then that the very first words of Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Very first words 
out of his mouth, calling for a life of brokenness, that they might know the glory and the joys of God. See, the Lord seeks to be sought today. The Lord seeks to be sought, but it's our sin that ruins our seeking. But here's what we find out, thirdly, from our text here today is this, that the faithful will be found. The faithful will be found, but there will be the forsaken as well. But look at verse 8. Verse 8, it says this, Thus says the Lord, as new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake, and not destroy them all. The picture in verse 8 is a cluster of grapes. Most of them are bad, but not all of them. The good then will not be thrown out with the bad. No, no, no. The good will be kept. The good will be preserved. The good will be blessed. Listen, listen. The faithful will be found. So the text says here that the Lord will bring forth offspring from Jacob. That's verse 9. And offspring there reflects the Abrahamic covenant, of course, found in Genesis 22. Verse 10 speaks of restoration and renewal. It refers to Sharon, which was typical of sad deterioration. The text says that Sharon shall become a pasture, speaking of messianic renewal. And the Valley of Accor, it says, which had a great beginning which was marred, it says, but it shall be restored. But please, please notice at the end of verse 10. At the end of verse 10, it says, for my people. This is for my people who sought me. So again, this is most likely an inclusio from verse 1. John Newfeld taught us this yesterday. Book ends in a passage of Scripture. Book ends setting up the main truth of what's being said. I'm ready to be found. I'm ready to be sought. And then in verse 10 again, he says, This is for people who have sought me. The theme running through this chapter is that God is in pursuit. God is working within those in pursuit of Him. promise for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who thirst after the Lord, the promise is that they will be found. So in this text, and as we understood last night from Dr. Carson, yes, the sovereignty of God. Yes, loved ones, the sovereignty of God, but yes, also the responsibility of man. After all, the greatest commandment is the greatest commandment for a reason. Loving the Lord with everything we are, with our entire being, This is the call that the faithful will be found. Ultimately, again, I understand, uh, saved in the gospel. But within that too, all through scripture, for people who seek me, are you seeking him? Dads, let me ask you a question. Dads, very, very important. Dads, if I got your children and I brought them to me and I said, tell me, child, what does your dad love most in this world? What would they say? And you know they would speak the truth. If I asked your children, What does dad love the most? What would they say? Would they say his job? Would they say his hobby? Would they say his his money? Or would they say, I know he likes other stuff, but, but my dad loves Jesus Christ the most. Hey, spouses, if I asked your spouse today, what does the person you're married to, what do they love the most really? Really. Not by what they say, but how they live. What would the answer be? What would the answer be? 
See, this is the path to power right here. This is the, this is the break. So simple, yet everything's so powerful. The Lord seeks to be sought. It's a sin that ruins our seeking. And we start exchanging the glory of God for other things in this world, man. We start cutting off his power. And his voice is harder to hear. There's some students here right now. Students, I've asked your friends, what does so-and-so love the most in life? What would their answer be? In verse 11, things start to change. From the faithful to now to the forsaken. Verse 11 introduces a harsh reality in contrast to those who forsake the Lord, it says. Those who forsake the Lord have now become the forsaken. Why? Well, it's because they have feasted on fortune, verse 11. They have consumed uh, destiny, capital F, capital D, pagan rituals of pagan worship. And then look at verse 12. Notice God here, his play with words. You want destiny? I'll destiny you. I'll destiny you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. What's happening here? Their idolatry has provided them with a temporal pleasure resulting in an eternal devastation. They love destiny. They, they love fortune. They, they love the pagan rituals. And they have, they, have, they have exchanged these things and then left behind Salvation in the Lord. Again, again, for us here, believers in Jesus Christ, we gotta understand in our day, I'm so burdened by this in our day, a pastoring in this land, we are tempted more than ever in our day, we are tempted more than ever to apologize to unbelievers for the very message that saves them from death and hell. And this is where we must see, this is where we must see what's actually happening. Are we gonna fear man or are we gonna fear God? I mean, honestly, right now, you answer that question before God. Do we care more about the fear of man or do we care more about the fear of God? Because in the end, you and I every day, we're tempted to say, I apologize for the message that I say to you that you might be saved from the wrath of God. And when we see it for what it is, the fear of man is thrown in the garbage and we understand we'll stand before the Lord and give an account for the opportunity we've been given. Oh, let the Lord break you today. Do not fight. and Do not harden your heart if you hear his voice. Do not let your pride get in any way whatsoever what God wants to do in your life. Whether you're in the balcony or on the main floor, or not even in this room. And then notice the contrast unpacked between the faithful and the forsaken. Verse 13. The faithful shall eat. The forsaken shall starve. The faithful shall drink. The forsaken shall thirst. The faithful will find joy. The forsaken will find shame. The faithful will sing. Hallelujah. But the forsaken shall cry in pain. And even more in verse 14. They shall wail for the breaking of spirit. Lord, have mercy. Should this not now bring urgency to our lives and to our ministries? Should this truth, the reality of the faithful, and not to say, well, I'm part of the faithful, so I'm all good. Can't be those people. 
Should it not bring urgency for the proclamation of the gospel? I mean, this life can feel so long, but in reality, it is so short. One of two realities await heaven or hell. Again, we are ambassadors for Christ, pleading with people to be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5. We are the ones entrusted to speak on his behalf, to say, here am I, here am I. Here he is, here he is. We cannot capitulate the culture. For the love of God, we stand. Seriously, for the love of God. So God is in pursuit. And he uses those who are fully devoted to him. This is when Isaiah 65, it shows us the earnestness of God. It's amazing to me. The earnestness of God. It translates, and it must translate, into the earnestness of his people. Here am I, here am I. Behold me, behold me. And when you do behold him, then you don't stand and become mute. You don't stand and do nothing. You can't stand in complacency and lethargy and apathy. One of the greatest reasons, I didn't want to be a pastor, okay? I did not want to be a pastor. I tried to run away from ministry. But once I found out, God tends to win. And so I had to surrender to that. Now I'm in ministry. Say, okay, God, if we're going to go into ministry, if you're going to call me, my wife didn't want to marry a pastor, trust me, okay? But here we are. God, if we're going to do this, let's see life's changed. If we're going to do this, God, let's see your glory. Let's see you move among the people. Let's see hearts transformed for you. I am addicted to the power of the gospel in people's lives. There's nothing I love more. It's when you see the Lord at work. It is so awesome. It is so everything. There's nothing greater in this life. This is who we are to be. What happens is his earnestness for these things must become our earnestness for these things. This is the heart of Isaiah 65. You know what I love about right now? And here we are in this desire for revival to be among us. I love the fact that the truth is that Jesus Christ has not yet, you know, I want Jesus Christ to return, okay, trust me, I want him to return. But he has not yet returned, which means what? Which means he's not yet done building his church. That means there are people to be saved. There are people to be ransomed for his glory. That means our job isn't close to then being done. And that the faithfulness found in here, in this place, will be the faithfulness found out there. God, help us to stand for you. That our faithfulness would lead to an increase of being used to see your faithfulness extending. The Lord seeks to be sought, loved ones. Our sin ruins our seeking. The faithful will be found. And finally, and fourthly this, um, our hope will be our home. Our hope, our hope, our hope will be our home. This takes us to the remainder of Isaiah 65. And I'd be lying if I said I wasn't overly thrilled of walking into this interpretation minefield. But one of the beauties of the Gospel Coalition, which I love, it allows for differing opinions while holding to the absolutes. Amen? Amen? But regardless of what our specific convictions might be in these specific verses regarding our eschatology, we can agree on this in verses 17 to 25. We can agree that this is conveying a mind-blowing hope. At the very least, at the very least, we read these verses. We see new heavens, new earth. We, we see before they call... I will answer. When they're speaking, I will hear. We read the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat the straw like the ox. They shall not hurt or destroy my holy mountain. We see a joy being created. 
In verse 19, a rejoicing in Jerusalem and, 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 and no more shall be heard the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. At the very least, loved ones, it should cause us to long for home, to long for what will be. George Whitfield, he, he had a seal with which he sealed his letters. And on this seal, there was always an inscription that these men used. And his inscription was Latin. It meant, it said, Astropotamus. And in Latin, astrobotamus, it means, uh, let us seek heaven. I love that. Some people say those who are heavenly minded are no earthly good. I could not disagree more. The more you see the realities of the gospel and what's coming, I believe, the more you know the reality of the future, the more that should impact you for the presence. And Whitfield sure proved that with his life. He was seeking heaven, John Wesley says, the most impactful man in his, in his time, if not in, in the history of the church. I want to let you in on a secret. You're here today and you're Canadian. You're American. You're something other. I want to remind you that Paul says in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. So I'd love to break it to you that you're not actually Canadian. Listen, listen. You're heavenese. No, no, no. And, 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 and live like. You want to clap for that? We clap for that. Amen. Let's clap for that. Let me show you a picture of my passport. Look at this. Notice, notice, I got pulled aside a few times at the airport. They weren't very happy about that, but uh, as if I would actually use that. But notice at the top, notice, no offense, Canada. I'm thankful for this nation, man, but that's not where I'm going. All right? And look down there, too, man. It says, uh, Heavenese. That's my nationality. That's, that's my citizenship. I'm Heavenese. Are you? Let's live like it. This is the whole point. When we understand where we're going, when we understand the reality of what we're called to, this is what frees us to not live for now. This is what frees us to live with a cost, to lose our life, to count all things as lost. Why? Compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, Philippians 3 again. This is the secret to Paul's life. I can live for him, meant to live for Christ, to die is gain, because I know where I'm going. I cannot lose Jesus has saved me. My inheritance is guaranteed. This is the theology we must constantly put through our minds, which allows us to say, well, what am I afraid of then? This is why Jesus says, don't fear the person who can kill you and after that do nothing. You can cut off my head. At the end of the day, you can't do anything more to me. Jesus says, fear him who after killing you has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And we are citizens of heaven. See, God is pursuing his people because ultimately we see in verses 7 to 25, he wants to save them for his glory. You see that? He woos us and loves us and saves us and reconciles us to himself because he wants to ultimately bring us to glory, to give him glory for eternity, to grant them hope of eternal newness and wonder. Verse 17, a hope that has no more distress or weeping. Verse 19, a hope that creates joy that can't be diminished or ended. Verse 19, a hope that brings unfathomable peace. Verse 25, it's a hope that began with God pursuing his people and ends with God with his people. Verse 24. And this is the hope that becomes our home, John 14. This is the hope that becomes our glory, Colossians chapter 1. This truth is everything. Because it allows us to live for what actually matters. 
You know what's amazing to me? Isaiah 65, in many ways, becomes a miniature version of the entire Bible. In this one chapter, Isaiah 65, God's holiness, man's sin. God's pursuit, man's rebellion. God's grace, man's salvation. God's plan, man's restoration. Just in this one chapter, again, the pursuit of God to ultimately perfect his people to the glory and the wonder of the gospel, to the glory and the fame of our God, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit forever and ever. And just think, this is the message of hope again that we have been entrusted with. The message is God is pursuing his people. And say it again, loved ones, revival. God in pursuit of his people and God is in pursuit of his people today. Right now. Because he wants to do more. The very fact that this conference is happening is proof that God is in pursuit. It's proof that he is moving. It's proof that the Lord is not done. So, we know that God is in pursuit, but here's the question. Who will God find? Who will God find today? The Lord seeks to be sought. He's looking for people fully committed, devoted to him who will seek his face. Today the Lord calls for repentance and brokenness. To take the sin that has been holding me back, the root of bitterness in my heart, the lust of my life, the pride of my flesh, the anger that I've had, the pornography that I've been viewing, the greed that I've been following, the laziness that I've been having, the lack of love for God that I've been neglecting. He calls today for repentance and brokenness. Today the Lord looks for the faithful. He is sovereign, yet we have the responsibility again of pursuing him and seeking him. Today the Lord points us to our home of hope. And he says, who wants more? Who wants more of me? I wonder who here today, in all seriousness, who here today needs to get on their face to seek God's face? Who here today needs to smash idols and turn from pride and prayerlessness and repent in brokenness? Who here today needs to respond to God's here am I and then follow in suit with Isaiah's here am I? So then I can say here he is. Who here today needs to be that man or woman? Who here today needs to repent of an obsession with this present world in order to renew themselves by the grace and love of God to live for the world to come. I'm going to do something right now that's going to require you and me to be humble. But this is the whole point of why we're here. And this is the whole point of a text like this right now. In the name of Jesus Christ, you will just promise me that pride will not be the thing that holds you back. If you today, you want to be renewed in the reality of your God who loves you so much and he pursues you and he loves you and he's calling you to greater things here today and maybe you've never done this before ever, that doesn't matter. It's a physical response of an internal reality of my heart and mind for the Lord God. I need you. I bring my sin. I bring my situation. I get on my face that I may seek your face. If you are here today and you want to respond to the Lord himself in the balcony or down here, I will invite you right now, right now, to come forward and kneel down at the front somewhere here right now. 
I invite you right now. Let's come as far as you can into the front so you can make room for other people. Just as far as you can. This is not emotionalism. This is a response of the heart that genuinely wants the Lord. I believe moments like this are so important. And so we ask the Lord. This is, this is why we're here. There's room at the side over here. If you can't make it to the front, you can kneel down where you are right now. And here's what I know because I know my own heart. There are people here right now with sin. You, are, you have just carried with you sin to the front. And you lay it down, and you lay it down before the Lord right now. And please understand, as you lay your sin down before the Lord Almighty, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And he forgives you right now. Child, he loves you so much. He loves you so much. And this is why he pursues you today, because he wants more from you. He wants to see him do more in your life. It's all grace. It's all grace. Confess to him right now, God, I can't do it. I can't do it in myself. You tell him, I need the reality of the gospel in my life. I need, or I confess, I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the know-how. I can't solve these problems. I can't produce a fervency in me, but by your spirit, you can. And so, Lord, we repent of how we have forsaken you at times. We repent how we have neglected you at times. We repent, Lord, we have loved the world. We repent, Lord, we're more excited about a sporting event than we are about the glory of God in your church. Forgive us, God. Forgive us, but heal us and you will. You will. And you are right now loving your people, loving your church. Listen, he delights in you. He loves us. He loves us. And that's why he does this right now. Let me join you in just saying and praying, God, I, I ask so much, Lord, that we would be men and women even here now that are resolving, Lord. We want to seek you. The Lord seeks to be sought. And your face, Lord, do we seek. Your face do we seek. Please, O oh Lord, show us your glory. O oh God, rend the heavens and come down. Please, O oh Lord, I pray that you would bring renewal, restoration, and revival to individual hearts that will impact marriages, that will bless families, God, that will do such a great work. Allow the Lord, allow the Lord to work freely within your life. Oh God, help us not to live for this world, but help us to live for the reality of what is to come. I'm never in a rush in these moments, never, because they don't come enough. Father, I pray for every individual here with hearts bowed and a desire for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Cleanse us of our sin. And help us to see you as clearly as ever before. Please, Lord, would you give us the freedom to pursue you with all that we are. Thank you for your grace in this moment. And I just encourage you where you are, just continue to pray and call to him. He hears every word. And his grace is so powerfully upon you. This is why he died for every sin represented here right now. This is his love.